Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following is an ad for the Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project, launched today and formed by several of Trump's fiercest conservative critics, has already raised over a million dollars in its pursuit to defeat Donald Trump. Announced the creation of the Lincoln Project, including George Conway, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, Mike Madrid, Jennifer Horn, Reed Galen, Ron Steslow, Rick Wilson. The Republicans have never shied away from criticizing President Trump, formed a political action committee. The PAC's mission is, quote, we are Republicans and we want Trump defeated. Over these next 11 months, our efforts will be dedicated to defeating President Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. Mr. Trump and his enablers have abandoned conservative and long-standing Republican principles and replaced it with Trumpism, empty faith, they call it, led by a bogus prophet. And to elect those patriots who will hold the line. A group called the Lincoln Project who just released this video. Ooh, that is The sad. Lincoln Project recently yeah. launched that ad. The group plans to purchase television and digital ads in several battleground states. And Trumpism requires a total lack of shame to go into the swing states where the race will be decided in 2020. The Lincoln Project is about defeating Donald Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. The Lincoln Project needs your help to defend the integrity of the Constitution and defeat Trump and Trumpism. Sign up now at thelincolnproject.us. It's January 28, 2020. On the seventh day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump, the president's team of lawyers wrap up their arguments in defense of the president. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Over the last two days of the trial, senators heard about 10 hours of presentations from White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his team, along with the president's personal attorney, Jay Sekulow, former independent counsels Robert Ray and Kenneth Starr, as well as Professor Alan Dershowitz. In today's episode, they wrap up their arguments. The next phase of the trial will be up to 16 hours of the House managers and the president's defense team answering written questions from senators. This is the impeachment, episode seven, the president's defense team's third and final day of presentations. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. White House Counsel Pat Cipollone outlined the defense team's plan before introducing Pat Philbin, Deputy White House Counsel, who added to Alan Dershowitz's argument that the first article of impeachment abuse of power, goes against the framers' intentions behind the impeachment clause. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate. Just to give you a very quick, brief overview of today, we do not intend to use much of that time today, Mr. Chief Justice. We intend to be, our goal is to be finished by dinner time and well before. We'll have three presentations. First will be 
Pat Philbin, Deputy White House Counsel. Then Jay Sekulow will give a presentation. We'll take a break if that's okay with you, Mr. Leader, and then after that, I'll finish with a presentation. So that's our, our goal for the day. And with that, I'll turn it over to Pat Philbin. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, Majority Leader McConnell, Minority Leader Schumer, I'd like to start today by making a couple of observations related to the abuse of power charge in the first article of impeachment. And I, I wouldn't presume to elaborate on Professor Dershowitz's presentation from yesterday evening, which I thought was complete and compelling, but I wanted to just add a couple of very specific points in support of the exposition of the Constitution and the impeachment clause that he set out. And it begins from a focus on the point in the debate about the impeachment clause at the Constitutional Convention where maladministration was offered by George Mason as a grounds for impeachment. And James Madison responded that that was a bad idea. And he said, so vague a term will be equivalent to a tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. And that evinced a deep-seated concern that Madison had, and it's part of the whole design of our Constitution, for ways that can lead to exercises of arbitrary power. The Constitution was designed to put limits and checks on all forms of government power. Obviously, one of the great mechanisms for that is the separation of powers, the structural separation of powers in our Constitution. But it also comes from defining and limiting powers and responsibilities and a concern that vague terms, vague standards are themselves an opportunity for the expansion of power and the exercise of arbitrary power. And we see that throughout the Constitution and in the impeachment clause as well. And this is why, as Governor Morris argued in discussing the impeachment clause, that only few offenses, he said few offenses, ought to be impeachable and the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. And that's why we see in the debates at the Constitution, there was a, many terms had been included in earlier drafts when it was narrowed down to treason and bribery, and there was a suggestion to include maladministration, which had been a ground for impeachment in English practice. The framers rejected it because it was too vague. It was too expansive. It would allow for arbitrary exercises of power. And we see throughout the Constitution in terms that relate and fit in with the impeachment clause the same concern. One is in the definition of treason. The framers were very concerned that the English practice of having a vague concept of treason that was malleable and could be changed even after the fact to define new concepts of treason was dangerous. It was one of the things that they wanted to reject from the English system. So they defined in the Constitution very specifically what constituted treason and how it had to be proved. And then that term was incorporated into the impeachment clause. Similarly, in the rejection of maladministration, which had been an impeachable offense in England, the framers rejected that because it was vague. A vague standard, something that's too changeable, that can be redefined, can be malleable after the fact, allows for the arbitrary exercise of power. And that would be dangerous to give that power to the legislature as a power to impeach the executive. 
And what we see in the House managers' charges and their definition of abuse of power is exactly antithetical to the framers' approach because their very premise for their abuse of power charge is that it is entirely based on subjective motive, not objective standards, not predefined offenses, but the president can do something that is perfectly lawful, perfectly within his authority, but if the real reason, as Professor Dershowitz pointed out, that's the language from their report, the reason in the president's mind is something that they ferret out and decide is wrong, that becomes impeachable. And that's exact, that's not a standard at all. It ends up being infinitely malleable. And it's something that I think a telling factor that reflects how malleable it is and how dangerous it is is in the House Judiciary Committee's report. Because after they define their concept of abuse of power, and they say that it involves your exercising government power for personal interest and not the national interest, and it depends on your subjective motives, the second point that I wanted to make is that how do we tell under the House manager's standard what an illicit motive is, when there's an illicit motive? How are we supposed to get the proof of what's inside the president's head? Because, of course, motive is inherently difficult to prove where you're talking about, as they've conceded, they're talking about perfectly lawful actions on their face within the constitutional authority of the president, but they want to make it impeachable if it's just the wrong idea inside the president's head. And they explain in the House Judiciary Committee report that the way we'll tell if the president had the wrong motive is we'll compare what he did to what staffers in the executive branch said he ought to do. So they say, quote, that the president, quote, disregarded United States foreign policy towards Ukraine, end quote and that he ignored, quote, unquote, official policy that he had been briefed on, and that he, quote, ignored, defied, and confounded every agency within the executive branch, end quote. That is not a constitutionally coherent statement. The president cannot defy agencies within the executive branch. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution vests all of the executive power in a president of the United States. He alone is an entire branch of government. He sets policy for the executive branch. He's given vast power. And of course, within limits set by laws passed by Congress, and within limits set by spending priorities, spending laws passed by Congress, he, within those constraints, sets the policies of the government. And in areas of foreign affairs, military affairs, national security, which is what we're dealing with in this case, foreign affairs, head of state communications, he has vast powers, as Professor Dershowitz explained, for over two centuries, the president has been regarded as the sole organ of the nation in foreign affairs. So the idea that we're going to find out when the president had the wrong subjective motives by comparing what he did to the recommendations of some interagency consensus among staffers is fundamentally anti-constitutional. It inverts the constitutional structure. And it's also fundamentally anti-democratic because 
our system is rather unique in the amount of power that it gives to the president. The executive here has more, much more power than in a parliamentary system. But part of the reason that the president can have that power is that he is directly democratically accountable to the people. There is an election every four years to ensure that the president stays democratically accountable to the people. But those staffers in these supposed interagency who have their meetings and make recommendations to the president are not accountable to the people. There is no democratic legitimacy or accountability to their decisions or recommendations. And that is why it is the president, as head of the executive branch, who has the authority to actually set policies and make determinations, regardless of what the staffers may recommend. They're there to provide information and recommendations, not to set policy. So the idea that we're going to start impeaching presidents by deciding that they have illicit motives, if we can show that they disagreed with some interagency consensus, is fundamentally contrary to the Constitution and fundamentally anti-democratic. Now, the other point I'd like to turn to, another accusation from the House managers, is that the whistleblower complaint, when the whistleblower complaint was not forwarded to Congress, they've said that lawyers at the Department of Justice this time, they accuse OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, of providing a bogus opinion for why the Director of National Intelligence did not have to advance uh, the whistleblower's complaint to Congress. And Manager Jeffries said that OLC opined, quote, without any reasonable basis that the acting DNI did not have to turn over the complaint to Congress, end quote. And the way he portrayed this, now there's a statute that says if the I, Inspector General of the Intelligence Community finds a matter of urgent concern, it must be, it must be forwarded to Congress. And Manager Jeffries portrayed this as if the only thing to decide was were these claims urgent. He said, quote, what could be more urgent than a sitting president's trying to cheat in an American election by soliciting foreign interference? That's not the only question. The statute doesn't just say if it's urgent, you have to forward it. It talks about urgent concern as a defined term. Now, if the House managers want to come and cast accusations at the political and career officials at the Office of Legal Counsel, which we all know is a very respected office of the Department of Justice, provides opinions for the executive branch on what governing law is, they should come backed up with analysis. So let's look at what the law actually says. And I think we have the slide of that. Urgent concern is defined as a serious or flagrant problem, abuse, violation of law relating to the funding administration or operation of an intelligence activity within the responsibility and authority of the director of national intelligence involving classified information. So the Office of Legal Counsel was consulted by the general counsel at the DNI's office and they looked at this definition, and they did an analysis, and they determined that the alleged misconduct is not an urgent concern within the meaning of the statute. 
Because they're not just talking about, do we think it's urgent? Do we think it's important? No, they're analyzing the law. And they looked at the terms of the statute. The alleged misconduct is not an urgent concern within the meaning of the statute because it does not concern the funding, administration, or operation of an intelligence activity under the authority of the DNI. Now, nonetheless, the president, of course, released the July 25th call transcript. And it was also not the end of the matter that the whistleblower complaints and the, the, DNI, uh, the ICIG's letter were not sent directly to Congress, because OLC explained that if the complaint does not involve an urgent concern, but if there's anything else there that you want to have checked out, the appropriate action is to refer the matter to the Department of Justice. And that's what the DNI's office did. They sent the ICIG's letter with the complaint to the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice looked at it. And this was all made public some time ago. The Department of Justice examined the exact allegations of the whistleblower and the exact framing and concern raised by the Inspector General, which had to do with a potential of perhaps a campaign finance law violation. DOJ looked at it, looked at the statutes, analyzed it, and determined there was no violation, and it closed the matter. And it announced that months ago. All right, when something gets sent over to the Department of Justice to examine, you can't call that a cover-up. Everything here was done correctly. The lawyers analyzed the law. The complaint was sent to the appropriate person for review. It was not within the statute that required transmission to Congress. And everything was handled entirely properly. Jay Sekulow, the president's attorney, then discussed what he believed was at stake in the presidential impeachment. What we are involved in here, as we conclude, is perhaps the most solemn of duties under our constitutional framework. The trial of the leader of the free world and the duly elected president of the United States. It is not a game of leaks and unsourced manuscripts. That's politics, unfortunately, and Hamilton put impeachment in the hands of this body, the Senate, precisely and specifically to be above that fray. This is the greatest deliberative body on earth. In our presentation so far, you've now heard from legal scholars from a variety of schools of thought, from a variety of political backgrounds. But they do have a common theme with a dire warning, danger, danger, danger. To lower the bar of impeachment based on these articles of impeachment would impact the functioning of our constitutional republic and the framework of that constitution for generations. I asked you um, to put yourself, and quoting um, Mr. Schiff's, Manager Schiff's statement his father made about putting yourselves in the shoes of someone else, and I, 
I said, I'd like you to put your shoes, your, yourself in the shoes of the President. And I think it's important as we conclude today that we're reminded of that fact. The President of the United States, before he was the President, was under an investigation. It was called Crossfire Hurricane. It was an investigation led by the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. James Comey eventually told the President a little bit about the investigation and referenced the Steele dossier. James Comey, the then director of the FBI, said it was salacious and unverified. So salacious and unverified that they used it as a basis to obtain FISA warrants. Members, managers here, managers at this table right here, said that any discussions on the abuse from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act utilized to get the FISA warrants from the court were conspiracy theories. I told you at the very beginning, I asked, do you put yourselves in the shoes of not just this president, of any president that would have been under this type of attack? You're being asked to remove a duly elected president of the United States. That's what the articles of impeachment call for removal. So we had a special counsel, and we got the report. And just for a moment, putting yourselves in the shoes of this president or any president that would be under this situation, you're number four at the Department of Justice. His wife is working for the firm that's doing the opposition research on him and is communicating with the foreign former spy, Christopher Steele, to put together the dossier, and it's being handled by Christopher Steele through Nellie Orr to her husband, then the fourth-ranking member at the Department of Justice, Bruce Orr, and all of this is going on, and he doesn't want to tell, and he's testified to this, he doesn't want to tell everybody what he's doing because he's afraid he might have to stop might have to stop. How did this happen? This is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And then we ask, why is the president concerned about advice he's being given? Put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. there was a pause on foreign aid. I laid out before that there was pause on all kinds of foreign aid. It's not the first president to do it. But the one thing I, I'm still trying to understand from the manager's perspective, and maybe it's not fair to ask the managers because you're not the, you're not the leader of the, of the House, but remember the whole idea that this was a dire national security threat, a danger to our nation? We had to get this over here right away. It had to be done before Christmas. It was so important, it was so significant. The country was in such jeopardy. The jeopardy was so serious that it had to be done immediately. Let's hold on to the articles of impeachment for a month to see if the House could force the Senate 
to adopt rules that they wanted, which is not the way the Constitution is set up. But it was such a dire emergency. It was so critical for our nation's national interest that we could hold them for 33 days. Danger, danger, danger. Put yourself in the president's position. Do you think he thought when he was on the call it was him and, and President Zelensky he was talking to and that was it? Or it was, as sometimes I heard one commentator said, it was people listening in on the call, the president and 3,000 of his closest friends. Let's be realistic. The president of the United States knew when he was on that call there were a lot of people listening from our side and from their side. So he knew what he was saying. He said it. We released a transcript of it. The facts on the call that have been kind of the focus of all of this really focused on foreign policy initiatives both in Ukraine and around the globe. They talked about other countries and other countries. The president has been very concerned about other countries carrying some of the financial load here, not just the United States. That's a legitimate position for a president to take. If you disagree with it, you have the right to do that. But he is the president. As my colleague, Deputy White House Counsel Philbin just said, that's the executive branch prerogative. That is their constitutional appropriate role. So the call is well documented. There were lots of people on the call. The claim that foreign policy decisions can be deemed abuses of power based on subjective opinions about mixed or sole motives that the president was interested only in helping himself demonstrate the dangers of employing the vague, subjective, and politically malleable phrase abuse of power as a constitutionally permissible criteria for the removal of a president. He went on to say, now it follows from this that if a president, any president, were to have done what the Times reported about the content of John Bolton's manuscript, that would not constitute an impeachable offense. I'm quoting exactly from Professor Dershowitz. He says, let me repeat it. Nothing in the Bolton revelations, even if true, even if true, would rise to the level of abuse of power or an impeachable offense. That is clear from history. That is clear from the language of the Constitution. You cannot turn conduct that is not impeachable into impeachable conduct simply by using words like quid pro quo and personal benefit. It is inconceivable that the framers would have intended to so politically loaded and promiscuously deployed a term as abuse of power to be weaponized, again, Professor Dershowitz, as a tool of, a tool of impeachment. It is precisely the kind of vague, open-ended, and subjective term the founders and the framers feared and rejected. Now, to be specific, you cannot impeach a president on an unsourced allegation. But what Professor Dershowitz was saying, even if everything in there was true, 
it constitutionally doesn't rise to that level. But I want to be clear on this because there's a lot of speculation out there. With regard to what John Bolton has said, which referenced a number of individuals, we'll start with the president. Here's what the president said in response to that New York Times piece. I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. In fact, he never complained about this at the time of his very public termination. If John Bolton said this, it was only to sell a book. The Department of Justice. While the Department of Justice has not reviewed Mr. Bolton's manuscript, the New York Times account of his conversation grossly mischaracterizes what Attorney General Barr and Bolton discussed. There was no discussion of personal favors or undue influence on investigations, nor did the Attorney General state that the President's conversations with foreign leaders were improper. That was the response. Responding to an unpublished manuscript that maybe some reporters have an idea of maybe what it says. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what the evidence, if you want to call that evidence, I don't know what you'd call that. I'd call it inadmissible, but that's what it is. To argue that the president is not acting in our national interest and is violating his oath of office, which the managers have put forward, is wrong based on the facts and by the way the Constitution is designed. And when you look at the fullness of the record of their witnesses, their witnesses, the witnesses' statements, the transcripts, there's one thing that emerges. There is no violation of law. There's no violation of the Constitution. There is a disagreement on policy decisions. Most of those that spoke at your hearings did not like the president's policy. That's why we have elections. That's what policy differentials and differences are discussed. But to have, have a removal of a duly elected president based on a policy disagreement, that is not what the framers intended. And if you lower the bar that way, danger, danger, danger. Because the next president, or the one after that, he or she will be held to that same standard? I hope not. I pray not that that's not what happens. Not just for the sake of, of my client, but for the Constitution. How much time? How much time has been spent in the House of Representatives hoping, they were hoping, that the Mueller probe would result in, I mean, I'm not going to play you, I was thinking about it, playing all the clips from all the commentators the day after, the day after the, Bob Mueller testified. Bob Mueller was unable to answer under his examination basic and fundamental questions. He had to correct himself, actually. He had to correct himself before the Senate for something he said before the House. 
So that's what the president's been living with. And then we're here today arguing about what? A phone call to Ukraine? Or Ukraine aid being held? Or a question about corruption? Or a question about corruption that happens to involve a high public profile figure? I mean, is that what this is? Is that where we are? And then what do we find out? The aid was released. It was released in an orderly fashion. So again, policy disagreements, disagreements on approach, have elections. That's what we do in our republic. For three long days, House managers presented their case by selectively showing parts of testimony. Good lawyers show parts of testimony. You don't have to show the whole thing. But other good lawyers show the rest of the testimony. And that's what we sought to do, to give you a fuller view of what we saw as the glaring omissions by my colleagues, the House managers. The legal issues here are the constitutional ones. And I have been, um, I think, pretty clear over the last week, starting when we had the motions arguments, that my concern about the constitutional obligations that we're operating under. I have been critical of Manager Nadler's executive privilege and other nonsense. We, I want you to look at it this way. Take out executive privilege. First Amendment free speech and other nonsense. The free exercise of religion and other nonsense. The rights to due process and other nonsense. The rights to equal protection under the laws and other nonsense. You can't start doing that. You would not do that. No administration has done that. In fact, since the first administration, George Washington. They wanted information. He thought it was privilege. He said it was executive privilege. But let's not start calling constitutional rights other nonsense, lumping them together. Of course, this is from, from a House of Representatives that actually believes the attorney-client privilege doesn't apply which should scare every lawyer in Washington, D.C. But more, more scary to the lawyers would be for their clients. They say that in writing, in letters. They don't hide it. I would ask them, I don't, I'm not going to, it's not my privilege to do that, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the attorney-client privilege does not apply in a congressional hearing? Do you really believe that? Because then if it doesn't apply, then there is no attorney-client privilege. Or is that the attorney-client privilege and other nonsense? Danger, danger, danger. If partisan impeachment is now the rule of the day, which these members and members of this Senate said should never be the rule of the day, my goodness, they said it, some of them, five months ago. 
But then we had the national emergency. A phone call. It's an emergency. Except we'll just wait. But if partisan impeachment based on policy disagreements, which is what this is, and personal presumptions or newspaper reports and allegations in a unsourced, maybe this is in somebody's book, who's no longer at the White House, that becomes the new norm. Future presidents, Democrats, Republicans, will be paralyzed the moment they are elected, before they can even take the oath of office. The bar for impeachment cannot be set this low. Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, House Managers, members of the Senate. Danger, danger, danger. These articles must be rejected. The Constitution requires it. Justice demands it. White House Counsel Pat Cipollone closed the President's defense by examining what Democratic members of Congress have said about the impeachment of President Bill Clinton, and also makes an appeal to the dangerous precedent he believes this impeachment would set. And also makes an appeal to the dangerous precedent he believes this impeachment would set. Pat I, think, I think you've heard a lot from our side, and I think we've made our case. And so I just want to leave you with a couple of points. First of all, first of all, thank you, Mr. Leader, and thank you, Democratic Leader Schumer, and all of you for the privilege of speaking on the floor of the Senate and for your time and attention. We really appreciate it. We've made three basic points. One, all you need in this case is the Constitution and your common sense. You just look at the articles of impeachment. The articles of impeachment fall far short of any constitutional standard, and they are dangerous. And if you look to the words from the past that I think are instructive, as I said last night, they're instructive because they were right then and they're right now. And I'll leave you with some of those words. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by the other. Such an impeachment will produce the divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. This is unfair to the American people. By these actions, you would undo the free election that expressed the will of the American people in 1996. In so doing, you will damage the faith the American people have in this institution and in the American democracy. You will set the dangerous precedent that the certainty of presidential terms, which has so benefited our wonderful America, will be replaced by the partisan use of impeachment. Future presidents will face election, then litigation, then impeachment. The power of the president will diminish in the face of the Congress, a phenomenon much feared by the Founding Fathers. This is a constitutional amendment that we are debating, not an impeachment resolution. 
The Republicans are crossing out the impeachment standard of high crimes and misdemeanors, and they are inserting the words any crime or misdemeanor. We are permitting a constitutional, constitutional coup d'etat which will haunt this body and our country forever. I warn my colleagues that you will reap the bitter harvest of the unfair partisan seeds you sowed today. The constitutional provision for impeachment is a way to protect our government and our citizens, not another weapon in the political arsenal. I expect history will show that we've lowered the bar on impeachment so much. We have broken the seal on this extremely extreme extreme penalty so cavalierly that it will be used as a routine tool to fight political battles. My fear is that when a Republican wins the White House, Democrats will demand payback. You were right. <laughs> but I'm sorry to say you were also prophetic. And I think I couldn't say it better myself, so I won't. You know what the right answer is in your heart. You know what the right answer is for our country. You know right, what the right answer is for the American people. What they are asking you to do is to throw out a successful president on the eve of an election with no basis and in violation of the Constitution. It would dangerously change our country and weaken, weaken forever all of our democratic institutions. You all know that's not in the interest of the American people. Why not trust the American people with this decision? Why tear up their ballots? Why tear up every ballot across this country? You can't do that. You know you can't do that. So I ask you to defend our Constitution, to defend fundamental fairness, to defend basic due process rights, but most importantly, most importantly, to respect and defend the sacred right of every American to vote and to choose their president. The election is only months away. The American people are entitled to choose their president. Overturning the last election and massively interfering with the upcoming one would cause serious and lasting damage to the people of the United States and to our great country. The Senate cannot allow this to happen. It is time for this to end, here and now. So we urge the Senate to reject these articles of impeachment for all of the reasons we have given you. You know them all. I don't need to repeat them. They've repeatedly said over and over again, a quote from Benjamin Franklin, it's a republic if you can keep it. And every time I heard it, I said to myself, it's a republic if they let us keep it. And I have every confidence, every confidence in your wisdom. You will do the only thing you can do what you must do, what the Constitution compels you to do, reject these articles of impeachment.
for our country and for the American people. It will show that you put the Constitution above partisanship. It will show that we can come together on both sides of the aisle and end the era of impeachment for good. You know it should end. You know it should end. It will allow you all to spend all of your energy and all of your enormous talent and all of your resources on doing what the American people sent you here to do, to work together, to work with the President, to solve their problems. So this should end now as quickly as possible. Thank you again for your attention. I look forward to answering your questions. And with that, that ends our presentation. Thank you very much. After the conclusion of the President's defense, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell adjourned the Senate after outlining procedures for the senators to ask questions of both sides over the next two days. The Majority Leader is recognized. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, I have uh, reached an agreement with the Democratic leader on how to proceed during the question period. Therefore, I ask unanimous consent that the question period for senators start when the Senate reconvenes on Wednesday. Further, that the questions alternate between the majority and minority sides for up to eight hours during that session of the Senate. Finally, that on Thursday, the Senate resume time for senators <clears throat> questions alternating between sides for up to eight hours during that session of the Senate. Is there objection? Without objection, so ordered. So we will complete the question period over the next two days. I remind senators that their questions must be in writing, will be submitted to the Chief Justice. During the question period of the Clinton trial, Senators were thoughtful and brief with their questions, and the managers and counsel were succinct in their answers. I hope we can follow both of these examples during this time. During the impeachment trial of President Clinton, Chief Justice Rehnquist advised counsel, quote, counsel on both sides, that the chair will operate on a rebuttable presumption that each question can be fully and fairly answered in five minutes or less, end quote. The transcript indicates that the statement was met with, quote, laughter, end quote. <laughs> Nonetheless, managers and counsel generally limited their responses accordingly. I think the late chief's time limit was a good one and would ask both sides to abide by it. So, Mr. Chief Justice, I ask unanimous consent that the trial adjourn until 1 p.m. Wednesday, January 29th, and that this order also constitute the adjournment of the uh Senate. Without objection, we're adjourned. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adolsky, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest. Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow 
Until next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.